listening to the Plugged In Podcast, a new project from the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm Alex Stevens, policy analyst here at the Institute for Energy Research. Joining me today to discuss his recent article on the looming corporate scandal at Bloom Energy is Paul Dreesen. Paul is a senior policy advisor with the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow and the Center for the Defense of Free Enterprise. He's the author of Eco-Imperialism, Green Power, Black Death, and the editor of Energy Keepers, Energy Killers, The New Civil Rights Battle by the late Congress of Racial Equality National Chairman Roy Innes. Paul, thank you for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me, Alex. So last week you published an article at Town Hall called Bloom Energy's Tangled Web, uh, which came shortly after an appearance you made at the Heritage Foundation where you called Bloom Energy the Theranos of fuel cells. What's going on at Bloom Energy? Well, it's a fascinating story, and it's so complicated. We've got to try to cut through a lot of the weeds here and get down to some of the basics. Essentially, what happened was... uh, GM, Chrysler, and Fisker closed their automotive programs up in Delaware. So it cost the state thousands of jobs, and the state was desperate to get some new jobs. And all of a sudden, here's Bloom Energy. So the governor, Governor Markell, and the head of their natural resources department, Colin O'Mara, and various Democratic legislators in the state got together with Bloom, which promised, oh, we'll create 900 jobs and bring in millions of dollars in revenue to the state of Delaware. So they quickly passed some legislation, welcomed Bloom in, gave Bloom millions of dollars to build a plant that uh, will be on state property, basically. Land will be leased back to Bloom for a dollar a year, and Bloom would be able to sell its fuel cell energy to Delaware customers, supposedly for a dollar a month in extra subsidies, which bloomed uh, quickly to $5 a month and more. So in any event, the bottom line is that Bloom Energy was able to populate its board with a lot of public, notable public figures, uh, Colin Powell and so forth, the head of Google, John Doerr, a lot of major corporations that would stand up and say how wonderful Bloom's energy system was, how green it was, uh, with key Delaware government officials, and make arrangements that gave Bloom wonderful preferential treatment on a lot of different fronts. It allowed Bloom to avoid various rules for uh, energy, for uh, carbon dioxide emissions and uh, toxic hazardous wastes, uh, get preferential treatment on a number of other fronts having to do with subsidies and rates for the taxpayers and the consumers. And what really helped Bloom was a very special definition of renewable energy. No other company on the planet gets this kind of special definition and treatment. Basically, Bloom is able to claim it's providing renewable energy just because its fuel cells could run on biofuels, like methane that comes from cows or from landfills, even if they've never run on biofuels, but have only run on natural gas that comes from drilling and fracking and is not exactly a renewable resource in the common uh, nomenclature, and even if their fuel cells generate hazardous wastes in the process. So they get to have 
all these subsidies. They get to build a fuel cell plant in a sensitive coastal zone area. They get to have this special definition and ignore the hazardous materials laws and rake in tens, hundreds of millions of dollars in subsidies over the years. And up to now, very few people have asked any questions. They've let Bloom go to an IPO and initial purchase offering on the public markets, and their uh, stock price has gone from $15 a share to $30 a share and maybe more at this point. Everybody looks the other way when it comes to any of the misstatements and subtle uh, claims that Bloom is making that are essentially false and and misleading. So here we are. It certainly is an interesting case study. At IER, we talk a lot about when a regulation is proposed, um, it's not necessarily going to play out exactly how it's written down in the books, because a lot of times the people who are writing the rules have a hand in saying how they're being enforced. So it, it certainly sounds like that's at play here at, uh, at Bloom Energy. Um, why don't we talk a little bit more about the relationship Bloom has with government? We know that they receive the federal investment tax credit from fuel cell manufacturers. A group of senators lobbied to reinstate that tax credit um, and have it apply retroactively, which, from my understanding in this, played a big deal in their IPO. There were a lot of uh, analysts and stuff who were talking that up back in, I, I believe it was June. Can you talk a little bit more about that deal that they received in Delaware and the impact that all of this is having on ratepayers there? And just... A little bit more about how people in Delaware are being impacted by this. Yeah, essentially, Bloom is claiming it's going to offer really low-cost energy. But the only way they can do that is by ignoring the huge subsidies that first the taxpayers and then the ratepayers are paying in Delaware for the electricity they're getting from these fuel cells. Bloom has gotten something on the order of $1.5 billion in subsidies so far nationwide for its fuel cells. It's gotten around $212 million in subsidies from the state of Delaware. On the Delaware monthly electricity bill, it's laid out what, and this is a novel, it's a unique to Delaware, nobody else does this. It lays it out on the electricity bill how much of a, their bill is a subsidy to various energy systems. And it shows that these subsidies have gone from about a dollar a month per household a few years ago to $5 and rising steadily per month now. Uh, And that's on top of all the taxpayer subsidies. So Bloom can still claim that its fuel cell electricity goes for about nine cents a kilowatt hour. But if you add in the subsidies and so forth, it's more like 15 to 20 cents a kilowatt hour, which is just uh, bank busting uh, for a hospital, a factory, or anybody else that has to use this electricity. And uh, the study recently shows that one-third of all U.S. households are struggling to pay their electricity bills even now. If we are forced to go over to solar and wind and and fuel cell electricity, it's probably going to be two-thirds of all U.S. households will struggle because those prices are going to go through the roof. So that's essentially the problem that Delaware and other U.S. 
energy consumers are facing, but what we have is a huge fuel cell and renewable energy industry that really knows how to play the subsidy and legislative crony capitalist game where they provide sub, uh, campaign contributions to all kinds of politicians and in exchange they get all kinds of subsidies and mandates and other favors from the politicians and the taxpayers and consumers are paying for all of that. I think an, an interesting part about this story, though, and you alluded to this um, in our introduction, is that there's another side to this, that Bloom also has relationships with other corporations, other journalists. Their board is made up of very prominent people. In your article in Town Hall, you point to Bloom's financial parent, Kleiner Perkins, and how they called on other corporate executives to come in and promote Bloom back when they were first getting going. Can you talk about the role that Google and some of these other companies played in Bloom's rise and how that's played out over time? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really important point. One of the games not just Bloom, but a lot of these other energy companies play when they're going for subsidies and trying to get this great image in the public's mind is they'll have a press conference. So here's Bloom. Uh, it's struggling a little bit to, to stay solvent, to keep from going bankrupt. And John Doerr, one of the founders of Google, brings in a bunch of top executives, not just from Google, but from eBay and Walmart and FedEx and Coca-Cola. They all go on stage and they say these wonderful things about what a, what a cool technology Bloom has and everybody ought to use this stuff and they get this fabulous, adoring press as a result. The regulators are impressed. Uh, investors are impressed. They're able to raise some more money and get some more subsidies. So Bloom went from being close to bankrupt to suddenly having more money in its pocket and able to get uh, an investment tax credit on the federal level. They get state money, they get county money even uh, in form of subsidies. So with Google, to back up what he was saying, John Doerr, the chairman, said that uh, we're going to install four Bloom uh, fuel cell boxes, each one with 100 kilowatts of capacity. And this this underscores the commitment we have to this company and how wonderful we think these fuel cells are. But here's the trick. Only one of the four installed boxes had a run for a lousy 30 days at a very poor 60% capacity. And then Bloom was able to claim that it had a commercial fuel cell. I mean, almost any technology is going to be able to pass that low bar test. Uh, but the reality is that the American Society of Mechanical Engineers issued a report just before this Google arrangement that said the Bloom solid oxide fuel cells were the worst fuel cells they had ever tested. Bloom comes in, it installs these 400 kilowatt hours, kilowatts of electricity generation at Google. Google never installs another one. This is 10 years ago almost. And in the meantime, they've gone to other sources of electricity. And moreover, Google doesn't use this fuel cell electricity on its own sites. It, along with Apple computers, which also installed some, they don't use these fuel cells to run their own operations. They just use them to sell subsidized electricity 
that the utility companies in North Carolina and Delaware are forced to buy at the highest going rate whenever the electricity is actually generated. So all these adoring corporations are in it not because they believe in the electricity, not because they're using the electricity, but because they get green PR, lots of plaudits from the government, politicians, regulators, the news media, environmentalist groups. They avoid getting bad press for saying anything negative about fuel cells and renewable energy. They don't get any protesters on the front of their buildings. So there's no real downsides to all this gross misrepresentation, this very intentional, I think, misrepresentation by Bloom and all these various companies that claim these are uh, the fuel cells of the future, the energy of the future. They use them themselves and so forth. In reality, it's all just a sham, but nobody's supposed to look behind the curtain to see what's actually going on. The reliability issues that you talked about with Google are are a big deal because from my understanding, the argument for fuel cells is that because they're a form of distributed energy, there's cost savings from not having to transmit the electricity over power lines. But the fixed costs of maintenance are then divided among less people. So if you have reliability issues, those fixed costs go up. So um, the, the, the reliability issues that you, that you talked yeah, about are, it's are more are, complicated are than that, really, Alex. But uh, essentially, these companies install the fuel cells on their own property. So supposedly, they don't have to worry about a long transmission line from a coal or gas-fired power plant. In reality, they're really not using the Bloom fuel cells uh, because of reliability issues. Bloom claims that its fuel cells are operating 96% of the time. In reality, it's somewhere between 80 and 85% of the time, apparently, based on some of the data that I've seen. Uh, the fuel cells, uh, because they're using natural gas, are getting fouled up by various hazardous materials, including arsenic and hydrogen sulfide, chromium, lead, mercury. Uh, they emit a lot of volatile organic compounds. The fuel cell uh, components have to be cleaned out of all these various hazardous materials on a regular basis. Nobody knows what happens to them, to those hazardous materials. They get put in containers, but then where do those containers go? Bloom claims still that it's not generating any uh, hazardous materials. It claims that it hasn't got them stored on its sites. It claims that it's not transforming, transporting them anywhere. But they're there. They're someplace. And nobody's supposed to be looking around to see where they really are and what's really going on with this hazardous materials generation and whether or not Bloom is being honest with anyone. So that's uh, another component of this. And then finally, as I said earlier, the, the reality is that these companies like Google and Apple are not using fuel cell electricity for their own operations, but they're actually just selling it at a nice profit to the uh, public utilities in their neighborhood. 
again, this is all part of this political subsidy green energy charade driven by what I estimate to be about a $2 trillion a year renewable energy climate industrial complex that's just run by the politicians for the benefit of themselves and their crony capitalists. So I mentioned earlier that you appeared a few weeks ago at the Heritage Foundation and you were talking about this issue. Uh, I'll provide a link in the show notes to that uh, event uh, because I think it there's a lot of information that you and the other panelists spoke about there that doesn't really fit the format here. But um, your closing remarks there, I think, were great because they really did a great job of situating Bloom Energy within the political and economic context of the society that we live in right now. So my question is, how does Bloom get away with all this? We've kind of touched on it, but why aren't they being held accountable? What would you like to see happen? And where do you see Bloom Energy going in the near future? Uh, excellent questions. Let me jump in first by just talking a little bit about the situation. I've mentioned there's a $2 trillion a year climate industrial complex. On top of that, just for fuel cells, the federal government and state governments combined have given fuel cell makers about $3 billion in subsidies so far. Bloom alone has gotten about $1.5 billion. At the same time, these publicly traded fuel cell companies have accumulated some $6 billion in financial losses, and Bloom alone has lost $2.4 billion. And they're able to hide the hazardous waste. They're able to hide all this other stuff that's going on and your question is a very good one how do they get away with this as I said at Heritage I think they do it by invoking the very magical and infinitely malleable terms like climate change renewable energy sustainability and environmental protection and by doing that they can get all kinds of wonderful PR great plaudits from the government and uh, regulators, the media, the environmentalist groups. And at the same time, what they're doing is deceiving and exaggerating, fabricating, manipulating data all they want. And they know that few questions are going to be raised, little transparency is going to be required, and almost no accountability is going to be demanded. And this big $2 trillion a year climate change, renewable energy, environmentalist, political, industrial complex is going to provide cover. These guys are all very intent on maintaining and expanding that industrial complex. Uh, and they've got the environmentalist groups that built their reputations and their financial basis on all of this. So have these companies and politicians. They're all going to circle their wagons and make sure nothing happens and nobody does any investigations, or at least that's what they hope. So you have politicians who provide mandates and subsidies for this energy. The crony industrialists provide nice campaign contributions to keep reelecting these politicians. The environmentalists and the bureaucrats provide scare stories about climate change and hazardous materials from other people's uh, energy generation. They provide all kinds of junk science justifications and they provide more campaign help to the politicians to make sure they get reelected. So you've got a very wealthy, powerful, well-organized climate industrial complex. It protects its turf. It goes after anybody that asks awkward questions. 
questions, and this is how they perpetuate this wonderful arrangement for themselves at the expense of the rest of us. So what would you like to see done about this? I know at Heritage you mentioned the EPA could step in. Um, there's some possibility for federal action. What would you like to see happen? Well, I think we all we have to start by just acknowledging every one of us cares very deeply about our environment. We want it protected, but we want it protected from real threats, not manufactured threats. And we don't want companies like Bloom to get away with emitting hazardous materials and hiding them someplace. We, and we, we also really care deeply about being lied to. That, that's what drove me away from the environmental movement myself. I don't like to be lied to. I don't like to get ripped off on my, on my energy bills. And I don't like to have a bunch of virtue signaling phony green companies that when I look behind the scenes just a little bit, it's obvious that they're devious, greedy, and crooked. So as I said at Heritage, we need less adulation and subsidization and a lot more investigation, prosecution, and incarceration. And clearly that's not going to come from Delaware. These guys up there are too much in cahoots with Bloom Energy. And you see this across the board with Google and a lot of these other companies that have been in bed with Bloom. So it's really going to be up to our courts and executive branch. Congress uh, has to get involved. Some of its committees need to do some investigating. Uh, we need the FBI involved in the Environmental Protection Agency to look into this hazardous material stuff. Securities and Exchange Commission has done some uh, investigating of Bloom and the, the people that have supported Bloom and advanced its phony claims, but they need to do more. Fish and Wildlife Service should get involved because this is a coastal zone management issue and the state is not taking care of its own coastal zones. So you're dealing with some endangered species there that might be threatened by these bloom hazardous materials and uh, volatile organic compounds emissions in that area. Uh, Department of Transportation, where are these hazardous materials containers being taken? Where uh, are they being taken across state lines uh, in violation of our hazardous materials laws? Nobody seems to know at this point. Department of Justice should get involved, Federal Trade Commission. All of them need to investigate the concerns I've raised and other people have raised and prosecute, investigate, and prosecute the wrongdoers. So this is a great opportunity to look into whether this whole climate industrial process, uh, complex is an honest law-abiding operation or if a whole lot of it is based on ongoing deception and incredible greed and power across our political and industrial environmentalist classes. Before we go, other than your work on this topic, what else are you working on and where can people uh, find it, uh, your work? Well, I'm working on... Uh, Malaria still from time to time, a lot on climate change, a lot on these renewable energy issues, a lot on science fraud generally, uh, the, the fraud that's seeped into our scientific establishment has become outrageous largely because so much federal and state money is going into these uh, various so-called scientific claims about climate change, renewable energy, and all these issues we talk about here. Uh, I think 
IER is doing incredible work on this, and I'm always honored to publish on your website. My other work is often on townhall.com and cfact.org. I publish actually on a lot of different websites every week, and we're trying very hard to bring attention to these issues the same way you guys are. And I really admire the work you do because it's so in-depth. I rely on it heavily, but I try to take a lot of this stuff and put it in simple terms that the average person out there and even the average politician can understand. I think it's time for some transparency and accountability on all these environmental topics, and it's long overdue. My guest today has been Paul Dreesen. Paul, thank you again for coming on the show and talking with us. It's been my pleasure. 